What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain way back a long time ago in the times of yore where there was dwarves and elves and all kinds of hobbits that were fighting dragons and things, I developed a formula, and that formula was called New Mood. <laughs> New Mood was one of the very first formulas that Anna came out with because I understood that the molecule serotonin, the neurotransmitter, was so essential for the brain to operate at its highest capacity for relaxation, enjoyment, and positive mood. So we created a formula based around L-tryptophan and 5-HTP. Now L-tryptophan is an amino acid that converts into 5-HTP and 5-HTP converts into the serotonin molecule which can be shortened to 5-HT. So it's like a chain reaction time release version to help the body upregulate its own natural stores of serotonin. So this is just assisting the body in the process to help it do what will make the body operate a little bit more efficiently. And then we surrounded it with a bunch of herbs that help relax you, help put you in a positive state. Because myself, personally, I am prone to bouts of, well, actually all the things. <laughs> and that's probably one of the reasons why I've sought so many ways to help myself. And there's so many different tools that are available. It could be sensory deprivation tanks and floating. It could be yoga. It could be a hard workout. It could be getting sun and all the things I talk about in Own the Day. But also to help support the body, the mind, the mood, a good supplement formula like New Mood is an essential part of what I do. So if you're interested definitely check it out. It's something that not only is a good gift for yourself, but for anybody else who could use a little support for their mood, for their stress, anything along those lines. So go to onit.com slash Aubrey and check out some new mood from the times of yore. If you're like me, you might know Adam Savage from the show Mythbusters. And if so, you're going to be really pleasantly surprised by this podcast. He's the author of the book, Every Tool is a Hammer, and he is an intellectual powerhouse. I really enjoyed exploring a wide range of conversations with him. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Adam, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Aubrey. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. It's always really cool when you know somebody by watching them, and I've watched you on Mythbusters primarily. It's one of the first kind of the most exposure I've had to you, and then all of a sudden, here you are at my table sitting across from me and we're just going to talk about stuff yeah and figure it out that's always a rad experience for me so. well i love coming to austin any excuse to come here i have uh 
I've spent a lot of time here, often uh, for South by, mm-hmm. but also uh, my friend Tom Sachs had a big uh, retrospective show at the Museum of Contemporary Art here. Cool. Uh, came down a, a couple of years ago. A for, retrospective show for the contemporary art. That seems like a, a he's paradox. He's a contemporary artist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Beautiful, man. So, and you got a new book coming out. I do. Uh, Every Tool's a Hammer. It came out about a, a week and a half ago. Uh-huh. And I've actually like, I think I've practiced that before, like in the absence of a hammer and needing to Dude, hammer something in. It's whatever. Like, what have I? Hand. What have I not used? It is the to title is a joke told by an old colleague of mine, the late Mark Buck. Uh, I worked with him at Industrial Light and Magic on the Star Wars uh, prequels. I, he was actually he he also worked with Tori Belleche and, and Grant Imahara when we were all there. And Mark used to say that. Remember, in every tool there is a hammer. Yeah. And he's making a joke about the improvisational improvisational nature of making. Mm-hmm. about how we'll grab anything and use that tool for whatever we need it for. Yep. But I think he's also, like the, the way I always took it and what I love about it is that it's about the hidden life inside the things around us. And as makers, we're always finding, I'm specifically always finding other uses for tools than what they were originally intended. In fact, that's all, perhaps an alternate title for Mythbusters, misusing tools for reasons they were <laughs> never intended. Right. Uh, and again it's an improvisational nature but it's also about looking at things with a wider lens yeah i mean i can i can think back to all of the successful and failed attempts like rocks <laughs> i've certainly <laughs> provided that i've actually broken hammers these these uh surrogate hammers yes, on yep. the nails as well like well that was a bad idea i've well, used my phone <laughs> yeah totally totally yep. like all kinds of different interesting things but that's that's, I think, the problem-solving nature that's at the very core basis of why humans became the dominant species on this earth, right? Is like we were figuring out stuff like, okay, here's a problem. There's a monster and it has really long teeth and sharp claws and it's so much faster and so yep. much bigger than me. What am I going to do? Well, I'll make a long pointy thing. <laughs> that's my first strategy. And I, I totally agree. I completely agree. And I think that the other half of that equation from the tool building, which is aside from some work that corvids do, you know, crows and ravens and and Mm -hmm. some chimpanzees are potentially in the stone age currently in their use of tools. But right now it's only humans that really utilize tools and, and modify them. But the other half of that equation is that we tell stories about those tools. Mm-hmm. We exchange the information about what we did. Oh, if we hide behind this thing, then when the mammoths come by, we can kill more of them with these sticks if we're so all gathered together. Communication becomes a tool that's also and, a but differentiator. It's, and to me, communication, the origin of communication is the story. The story yeah. isn't ancillary. It is the driver. It is the facts that are in context, that are in context because of a need. Yeah. And I make this distinction because, you know, I, I went to high school like everyone else and I, I couldn't stand math because it felt just like this monolith of facts I had to memorize. And I have since come to love mathematics as a field because it is a magnificent and beautiful ever variegated field and i watch youtube videos about complex math concepts and i get maybe 20 percent of them mm-hmm. but the the rich story within what numbers can do and all the different ways you can surmise pi that's what my math teacher should have been explaining yeah but when you're teaching to a test of like well do they know their multiplication tables the multiplication tables don't matter right they're easily replicable yeah. i think that the interesting part because i had a an uncle who was really into, he was a mathematics professor at Rice and he was at the bleeding edge where he's creating new math. Right. And that was fascinating 
right? Like that was like, that was really incredible for me. You're creating new math. Right. Whoa, that's amazing. Because otherwise I could just ask somebody who's better at math and they could give me the exact right answer, which was my hesitancy towards that field. I was yeah. like, well, I like words and writing because I can tell, a, I can talk about that cactus a million ways and my way is going to be unique. So let me tell you a story. Uh, 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 a friend of mine is a film editor and uh, he says, I'm great at math. I'm just not that good with numbers. <laughs> so when you're writing, you're applying really complex algorithms about how you want that writing to go. Those algorithms are part of your system. They're in your brain. You might not be able to quantify them. And we as human beings might never be able to quantify what makes a, a truly amazing edit on writing or on film. And yet there is an algorithm being applied. And that's math. Damn, you just, blew, <laughs> you just blew my mind with that because you're kind of right. It's just applying the numbers are more varied because the words have nuances for the same thing. Like a number is kind of like a concrete symbol for the we, most part. We think of it as a concrete symbol. Yes. And again, I think that's educational. I, I, I One of the things if I, if I right now, if uh, the drum I love beating is that art and science are not two sides of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. and, and we always use them that way. Oh, well, it's both an art and a science. And what we mean is, oh, it's got some loosey-goosey stuff and it's got <laughs> some really rigorous stuff. Yeah. But there's plenty of art that is some of the most rigorous things you've ever seen. And there's plenty of science that is about as loosey-goosey as it could possibly get. And both, again, are simply ways that we tell stories to each other in order to understand ourselves. All right, so let me posit this question then. Yeah. I mean, understanding that, do you think that AI will ever be able to write a brilliant sonnet or paint a brilliant picture that will be moving to the human emotional, you know, like the the human perception yeah. of art? But I, that's a real, so that's a, there's two, key, there's two parts to that question, mm -hmm. right? The first is, will a computer be able to write a beautiful sonnet? And then I think the soul of the question that I find really interesting is that would be beautiful to a human. Because I could easily imagine an yeah. AI writing a poem that would be magnificent to another AI. And they'd be like, ooh. But we wouldn't understand one thing about it. Right. Right. They're like, oh, we decided to go with the octadecimal system because we thought that was like more, you know, I don't know. Maybe they're playing with complex uh, plane geometry in their heads. But I, I don't feel like we're going to, I don't feel anytime soon that we're going to get to AI that is writing beautiful poetry. I certainly think that AI could write plenty of crappy poetry that would pass as crappy right. human poetry. Right. But the idea that an AI would become sophisticated enough to start to have these, whatever meta view we have of the world as we're moving through it, I, I don't, to me, it's like worrying about thermonuclear war uh, just after the discovery of fire. Yeah, it's almost it's like definitely the, online. It's like the emotional body algorithm is so inherently rich and so inherently nuanced and so inherently unquantifiable that to assume that the AI could have the data set necessary for the human emotional perceptual body to be able to replicate something that would be effective for that. It's it's I think it's possible, but it's it's just uh, seems unlikely. To I'm me. about to I'm I'm already out over my skis on this, but I'm about to I'm <laughs> about to step way out over my skis and say I think this also posits the way we talk about it culturally posits that um, the brain works within a Newtonian frame. It works within the classical laws of physics, and I don't think we have enough evidence to state that mm -hmm. um it turns out that certain aspects of the i was just hearing someone tell me about this the other night that certain aspects of the way linea, uh, lithium the drug affects 
our mood and the and and help psychotic patients with their with their illness. I'm sorry if I'm using an antiquated term. Um, happens at the quantum level, and so does our sense of smell. Now, this is just what an incredibly smart sure. person I was dining sure. with was explaining to me. But that all of a sudden takes us into a whole other realm where replication becomes a, a completely other beast. So again, I, I'm, I, I don't sit in fear of AI. I definitely don't think we should be giving guns to robots. I think that's the yeah, crappiest that's idea the, I've ever heard. That's the leap that everybody makes though, right? Like, right. Like everybody's like, well, watch out for AI because then AI will be making other militarized AI and then we they're going to be all, in charge of that. Like, let's not do that. It's not AI we have to fear. We're already letting red light cameras and speed cameras write us tickets. And yeah. they're violating our constitutional right to face our accuser, which is to see the algorithm because they consider it they consider it a, a, a proprietary. If I can't see the reason um, if it's set at the wrong speed and I can't see that, then there's no legal process. I've been I've been mad about red light cameras since their inception <laughs> 25 years ago with exactly this argument. This is a terrible slope to go down to trust machines. The people yeah. who program them are idiots. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. The people who program the machines are not idiots, but the distribution of idiots is equivalent across humanity. Sure. And when there's when there's a failure, there's no there's no recourse, right? right. Like there's no what there's none do? of that. Punish the algorithm, make it sit <laughs> sit inside right. for two weeks. <laughs> it doesn't care. No. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing. It has none of the motivational. Uh, aspects. There's a there's a uh, 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 there was a TED talk a couple of years ago um, called Weapons of Math Destruction, and they talk uh, 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 Kathy O'Neill, I believe, is the is the speaker, and she talked about how an algorithm is simply an opinion rendered in math. And until we understand that culturally, and as long as we don't understand that culturally, we're in, we're actually causing danger to each other. I don't know how we got this far afield. I don't know, <laughs> but I don't know either, but that's the way it goes. This is, this, is the, this is the way the podcast rolls. One thing, you know, I did notice in, uh, in one of your, one part of your bio that you were on an episode talking about whether humans might live forever, which kind of interfaces with the uh, machine and kind of the technology mm -hmm. interfacing with humans. What was the conclusion of that? kind of investigation that you so had. that was a special i did for uh for the discovery channel uh part of their curiosity series that was uh that was started by john Hendricks, who's the genius who started the discovery channel john Hendricks is one of the few people i've ever met well you think wow one guy started the discovery channel and you're like what is that guy like and then you meet john Hendricks, and you're like oh that's what he's like he's like crazy smart super present super charismatic i've watched him stand up and give extemporaneous speeches and it blew my mind so when he asked me to be on a series for his thing i was like yes okay this is really good i'm gonna pause you right yeah. here because i'm glad that you know the guy who started the discovery channel because i have a gripe <laughs> i have a gripe i have, I'm a, not bon sure I have, I have a gripe all right so what, what what happened to me one day is i was Turned on the Discovery Channel and I saw a documentary on mermaids. Okay. <laughs> I saw a documentary on mermaids. Yeah. And I left and I finished that documentary and yeah. I was like, wow, the aquatic ape theory is real. Right. There were mermaids. Yeah. And then I go look up and there was just a, a fictionalized yeah. Yeah. imaginatory thing on the Discovery Channel. I was like, oh my God, yeah. I got duped. There's no mermaids. Yes. That was that was that was discovery succumbing to something that I didn't appreciate. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, "What is it?" And then I they tried those... to do it again with megalodons, and I was I... like, "No, no, no! You got me once. You got me once with mermaids, but this megalodon thing, no." I say no. Yeah. When the when the when the when the then head of discovery, when that megalodon documentary was coming out, I wrote to the person who was then the head of Discovery Channel, and I said, "I don't think this is a good idea." <laughs>
I don't Leave think it at mermaids. Think you have an amazing, <laughs> I think we have an amazing brand in Shark Week, one that I've been loved and proud to have been a part of on yeah. many occasions. Uh, we only get a few, we only get a couple chances before we break this brand and don't do this with this. And yeah. they disagreed and that is their prerogative. But I, I yeah, that sort of programming drives me crazy. <laughs> hopefully those days are over. I haven't seen any new ones no, after mermaids hopefully, and Megalodons. I believe, I I believe it was a passing phase, <laughs> like an adolescence. Uh-huh. And no they doubt. like to believe in weird crap. So, uh, so uh, uh, can you live forever? Was it was an hour long show in which I went. I lived for a thousand years, and we took every every current medical technology about life extension, from limb replacement to uh, to brain enhancement to skin refreshing. Uh, all of this was cast as as optimistically forward as possible. Um, and I, I, I like the exercise. I, what medicine can do uh, mechanically to us is its best feature. Uh, replacing our limbs or fixing parts of our bones. It is the thing I think the doctors are the absolute best at. And I'm really, it's an exciting time to be alive. I, I had a family member who had a, grew up with one leg longer than the other and went through some difficult surgeries, but, you know, was a cheerleader and a gymnast and lives, will live a totally normal life because of what medicine can do. And that's really exciting. Um, but the class implications of life extension are horrifying. Right. 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 I mean, that's the first thing that I say. Uh, the second thing is something that I realized at some point, like on some late night, like mental binge of what if <laughs> I thought, you know what? I don't know. I, like our consciousness is totally our consciousness is the miracle that I experience every day. Yep. Right. My sentience, my ability as a as a colony of bacteria and cells that somehow can understand itself and make its decisions is astounding uh and when i think about that i think well could my consciousness could the the thing that creates my consciousness be immortal sure i don't even know where it comes from so i don't know any of its properties so right. that could be possible but as i thought about immortality i thought oh my god i'll bet immortality is crushingly boring that is that that is i think that is something that i think we're underestimating i think we're underestimating one i mean i think the you know i have my own experiential spirituality that would lead me to believe, and of course, this is a, a something that I'm just positing based on my own experience that yeah. consciousness is unborn and undying. However, you know, don't expect anybody to take my word for this. This is n equals one, yeah, my own personal experience. Exactly. However, you know, like looking at that, I also recognize that you know, human beings' nature to kind of procrastinate and devalue these things that are in radical abundance and just kind of normalize it, like. You know, there was a famous line from the movie Troy where Achilles was mentioning to his lover, I forget her name, she says, the gods envy us because we're mortal. You know, like there's something precious about the fact that we are going to die. Also, do you, does one think, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh no, immortality would be great. I'd learn all this amazing stuff about humanity and its arcs. Okay, so if that's the case and you think that would be really interesting from a historical perspective, let's think about who gets to see humanity in its rawest form. Because that's eventually what you'd be doing. You'd be seeing all of our venality played out on this grand scale. <laughs> so go talk to a cop and ask a cop what they think of humanity. Yeah. I couldn't do that job. I like there are good cops and there are bad cops, and I've worked with hundreds or even thousands of them over the years. And the, one of the things that really that that really gets me is the, the the view they get of humanity is really upsetting. 
Yeah. And they don't, as I've talked to several, it's like, yeah, after a few years of this, I'm just kind of disappointed in people. Yeah. And do you, like after a few hundred years, I completely imagine that that would be the default state. So I, I like to, I, I'm not that, I'm not interested in life extension. Just a bunch I'm, of jaded, elitist, yeah, right. <laughs> bored, exactly. immortal. You know, like, I, we are, wow, congratulations. We really screwed this up for so ourselves. So in that same youthful mental bender I went on, I concluded that we, if, if, if our consciousness is immortal, then we come here to experience the, the, all of the joy and the terror of beginnings and endings. Mm. Also, the, the, the natural tendency for momentum, you know, like we're discovering and learning so much more about trauma and the impact that trauma has over a lifetime, right? Yeah. Like so many things yeah. that happen in our childhoods are playing out through the entirety of our life. To imagine the idea of no reset button ever, you know, on that thing, like the accumulation yeah. of these things that I suppose if we got better at our trauma processing, which is what maps.org and a lot of different organizations are working on, and then I think it becomes a little bit more interesting. But at this point, like where we have momentum that's kind of taking us down these pathways that can actually be you know, almost impossible to reverse these initial traumas, accumulating trauma over a thousand years. Wow, we might be really fucked up. Well, so I, I, I read this thing. Uh, my wife is a marriage and family therapist and has done a lot of research into trauma. It's one of the areas she's, she's working in and obviously it's a large part of her training. And one of the definitions she came home with to talk about was that trauma is the peeling back of the curtain that that these kind of things could happen at any second. And we live in this delightful fiction. Most of us, most of the time, are allowed to live a delightful fiction that life has a consistency, that there are reasons for everything, and that we have some measure of control. And all of those are complete fantasies. <laughs> they are. And until they get shattered. Until like they that. get shattered. And then when you experience them getting shattered, you have to literally piece yourself back together, back to a fiction that can accommodate both of these things. And that that was one of the theories about what trauma really is for us. Mm. It's that piecing back together of the self, which is itself an illusion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's and, and there's other just so many reactionary mechanisms that take place. Like you experience something traumatic, you realize the fragility of yeah. life itself. And then so your reaction is, well, if I'm super attached to how good life is and life is that good and it can be taken away like that, well, that's Terr super terrifying yeah. and painful. So let me dampen the goodness and enjoyment of life so that if it goes away, ah, yeah, well, at least I'm not that losing too. that much. You know, so all these psychological processes that are preparing us my, for our inherent fragility. My, my therapist, uh, I, my wife is a therapist. My mom's a therapist. I've been in therapy for most of my <laughs> life. I'm a huge believer in talking about your shit. Yeah. Uh, and my therapist has this great thing that he's regularly saying, which is, no, 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 no. I know that feels like a dumb coping mechanism now, but the moment you came up with it, when you were like 15 or 22, when you came up with it, it was a survival mechanism. And it was really clever of your brain to figure out this way for you to get through that week, day, month, year. Mm. It's just that they're not useful afterwards. Right. And it's nice to give credit to the system for like protecting you in some way. Yep. Oh, this must be my fault. That's what a lot of kids end up doing. Trauma in my life, it must be my fault because I cannot conceive as a child that things could go so far out of control. Right. And I mean, one of our duties as parents, I don't know if you have kids, I have two, uh, two boys. I, I considered one of my key duties as a parent while I'm raising them was to raise them for a while with the fiction of consistency so that they can understand so that they have some framework with which to deal with the fact that there is none 
Mm. Like we need this. We, I think we humans need this fortitude and we need each other to get through these kind of things. It's yeah. I think giving credit to what the function of the thing was, you know, I think that's something that even like Dr. Gabor Mate, as he talks about addiction, like addiction is an attempt to solve a problem. Yes. Right. And instead of it saying like, oh, it's a disease and it's bad and ah, like pushing it, it away and not both. looking at it, it can be it can, both. It's it, both. Yeah. Right. So like looking at it, like no, no, the addict is just attempting to solve a problem, and his way to solve the problem is through ameliorance and escapism, yeah. and that's created a, a dependency and a pattern that now we have to release that dependency and the pattern. But when you understand that it actually has a logical root right. to a certain degree. And, and then you can give appreciation for watching to television it. or movies or reading books or all the ways in which we fill our brains and distract ourselves. And I, I mean, I don't mean that all of those things are simply modes of distraction because many of them we also use to become more connected to the things around us. Sure. But yeah, I think you're totally right. Paying, paying respect for that, those ways in which your body protects yourself, your body and your mind. Yeah, I think we just, we sometimes just assume that everything that's happened is just oh something was broken ah oh, so he's broken he's a he's an addict oh it's genetic and blah, blah blah broken but like when we look when we really look and give credit to the logical underpinnings of all this again it goes back to math like what was the mathematical equation that caused this re right, result and adaptation to come to that conclusion yeah. yeah yeah and i think that's that's an important way to look at it and then you can actually send it some love and that's i think the way that you release it because putting it in judgment in exile like when we're talking about putting those machines in timeout when we put these algorithms and these processes that we have and we put them in timeout and we judge them and we say that they're bad and we have shame around them and we don't look at them they're probably going to persist a lot longer than saying like okay you know thank you yeah. for you know yeah. thank you alcohol for getting me through these really <laughs> hard fucking years yeah. and uh yeah i appreciate you very much and i don't really want you anymore well so you know? let, let's talk about the the thing about this the putting of love into it because this to me is the, the sort of the central thesis of this book mm -hmm. is that uh is that when you pay attention to those things you cannot pay attention to you sorry when you pay attention to those things you can't stop paying attention to that little thing that tickles in the back of your mind, whether it's, you know, how a sword is made or, you know, what shoes you want to wear or, uh, to be honest, architecture or singing or writing songs. There's so many reasons people invent to not dive into those things. I don't have time to learn a new language or the guitar. I don't have the right workbench for blacksmithing. But that when you go past those reasons and you actually explore that thing, as weird as it is, and I submit that all of our hobbies are weird, every last one of all of our hobbies are weird, they reveal stuff about ourselves to ourselves. Mm -hmm. we, we embark on a journey of self-discovery when we do those things. And in my experience, my primary hobbies, which are making costumes from movies I like and putting them on, and props from movies and historical things that I like and making them until they feel real and like they tell a real story to me, those hobbies are not making the world a better place. I am not actively contributing to the betterment of humanity in <laughs> at the workbench when I'm making a helmet, a space helmet. Yeah. But in the exploration, I am, I am contributing. I'm being part of my culture, but I'm also facing myself like we all do when we're trying to do something with a high degree of excellence. And that is making me a better citizen, a better man, a better husband, father, partner, friend, community member. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like that. The process itself is what shapes the individual and what, what shapes the individual then shapes the collective, you know? So 
that's a, it's a really important thing to remember that it's not it doesn't really necessarily matter what it is exactly you're doing as long as it's not harming anybody else yeah but as long as that's being additive to your life mm-hmm. and a helpful part of your process then you're going to then contribute to the world in a helpful way you're going to be a happier person a better father a better husband a better contributor to society because you're going to have that things that you've learned about yourself and 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 it's important to me in terms of the other thing that I do with those hobbies is I tell stories about them. Mm. As you know, storytelling is the most is I think the thing I've done for a living centrally more than any other single thing, and it's encompassed all the things I've done for a job. Uh, and when I tell those stories, it's really important to me. And I say at the opening of the book, this is not my life was not a linear path. Yes, I was ten when Star Wars came out, and I wanted to work on Star Wars, and I was whatever, 31 when I got to work on Star Wars. So that looks linear, but all the decisions in between were triage. They were all based on all sorts of things from my bank account to a divorce (laughs) to whatever was going on. Uh, They happened to end up in a place that seems linear, but I think that in, in our fame obsessed culture, it's, it's, it's damaging to think of it as linear because I encounter and have encountered and still continue to encounter all the same obstacles, the same uh, dark thoughts from my inner critic, the same imposter complex that I always did. There's no amount of notoriety or success that has insulated me in any way from any of the internal mental processes that I was experiencing in the workbench at 20. Yeah. Yeah. It's, (laughs) that's the great fiction, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, somebody can look at a person like yourself or like myself and be like, easy for you to say, bro, you know, like you got it made. You know, look at you. You got a, so many thousand followers, and you know your mm-hmm. bank account looks like this. Like, what could be hard for you in your life? Like, I don't know. Everything still, <laughs> like I, I, everything. It's not. It's not like these external things solve the internal things. Right. You know, they in some ways add pressure. Some ways alleviate pressure. It's always. It's always a dance. But it really comes back to the individual. How much are you going into your own shadows, going into your own dark corners, and trying to shed a little bit of light and illuminate yourself? Yeah. I, there was a, when Sean Penn made his film about Huey Long, uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember what it was called, but uh, he brought an actor out of retirement. I think the actor's name is Jackie Earl Haley. He was in Bad News Bears and then he was in Breaking Away. And when he found, and they had been actors, young actors together. And so Sean Penn was like, I want this guy. And they had to find him. And he was like driving limos in somewhere in Nevada or something like that. And then all the news stories were like, Sean Penn plucks this actor. And everyone's like, oh my God, look, he was driving limos and he used to be famous. Mm. And I was like, he's a person. He lived a <laughs> life. There's nothing, there's, nothing, there's nothing to take away from this except people live lives that go on these winding paths. And one that starts with the bad news bears might end up with you driving limos. And it's not this, like the, 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 the ethos of the article is always like, well, he was unhappy and now he's back to happy again. Yeah, like that was the that was success, right? And it's right. like this is the wrong message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the externalization of what happiness it is is a big problem. I think it's a primary fiction in our storytelling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at storytelling as like the way that we understand the world, we tell the story that I'll be happy when I'll be happy when I'll be happy when. Well, when may never come, you know. John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, st- the man who really brought mindfulness to the West with the uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction clinic in Boston. He says, do you want to know how your life is going to turn out? Everyone's always asking me. I'm wondering how my life is going to turn out. He's like, how is it right now? (laughs) That's how it is. That's what happened. And that's, I, I found that, I mean, I get chills just saying that again, because I, 
I found that so crazy grounding because it's true. We are always casting a what's it going to be like? What is going to happen? And it's happening right now. It's happening right now. You know, I, I had a, I'm putting out a newsletter. This will be a long, by the time this podcast comes out, this newsletter will have long been out, but I wrote mine this week and I've had, you know, pretty, pretty consistent bouts of mild depression and anxiety pretty much my whole life. Mm-hmm. And this last week has been one of the happiest weeks of my life. And it's not due to any particular thing other than just me recognizing that, you know what, everything is good now and has actually always been good no matter what. Even when I was in the job that I hated on a petty salary and was numbing my senses with too much alcohol mm-hmm. and doing it, things were good then actually if I would acknowledge that things were good at the start of the company, things were good now, things were good, things will be good then. It's it's, it's an perception. acceptance. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, all per, it's all a perception of the abundance that we have readily available or the perception of some kind of scarcity or need to to improve the situation to reach the happiness, but it's all it's all like in our head. It's it all is, a story. And and there are times when I'm driving around. I've certainly had plenty of days in beautiful San Francisco. Like I've just left my shop, feeling really good, driving my Land Cruiser, which I love. And like, oh hey, you know, shout out to the coffee person <laughs> as I'm driving by, and I feel like I'm part of my neighborhood and part of my culture, and it feels great. And I. This isn't to say I'm bringing myself down, but I remind myself this is as temporary as feeling like shit. Yeah, like both of these both of these things will happen. There's also this other aspect which I find fascinating culturally, which is we crave we crave the ability to be like, well, I just like to know that I could be comfortable. I would just like to know. I I am a victim of this as well. Mm -hmm. I like, oh, I just would love to know that I could retire and everything would be easy. And the my question is, do you really? Because when you go to a movie that's quote easy where you can see what's happening, it's so boring. Right, movie where you can see every beat happen. Yep. There are exceptions. I would submit as a side note that Strictly Ballroom, Baz Luhrmann's first film, is a movie in which every single narrative beat is telegraphed from about 60 miles away. And for some reason, that film still pumps me full of love every time I see it. <laughs> However, in general, one of our complaints about movies when we go see them is, ah, I saw the ending coming. I figured out the plot. I uh-huh. understood exactly why he was that he was the bad guy. So we want the variety of not knowing in the stuff we take in, in the narratives we take in, in the books and the TV shows and the movies. We we like to be surprised. In fact, it's something we seek as an experience, whether it's playing paintball or you know going in a bicycle race. So there's part of us that craves the comfort of a lack of surprise, and yet we don't crave that. That would be that would feel like death. Yeah. So again, one of the things I say in this book is when we start to make something whether it's a company or a podcast or a book or a costume we have a plan we have a a direction a trajectory but what we picture that's at the end of that trajectory trajectory is a placeholder and we never end it there we never achieve precisely what we thought we were going to make the costume is always different the Mm. book is always different the and that's the point that's why we Mm. do it because the path is winding and we don't know where it's going to end. Our job is just to keep putting one foot in front of the other and try to be excellent and, and mindful about it. Uh, and what happens along the way, those aren't failures. We talk about them as failures and we talk about teaching kids how to fail fast, et cetera. They're just iterations. Yeah. They're branches we went up 
And then we realized, oh, that's not the right branch. So we come back down to the trunk and we move up to the next branch. And that one, oh, that one actually is a little better. Okay, so I learned something from this. So I don't have to go all the way back down. Now I can jump. And somebody pointed out to me, I was, I was talking about this at Maker Fair, San Mateo's Maker Fair, the Mothership Maker Fair, uh, just on Sunday, which was this a couple days ago. And somebody came up to me and they said, you know, my daughter and I came up with a, uh, a little bit of rhetoric for the end of that, which is the only failure is to go back down to the base and not start again. <laughs> The only failure is not to keep on going. So true. And it's totally true. You know, it's one of the things that I've talked about before is that people have this kind of goal setting mentality. Well, a goal is a fixed place. It's a placeholder that is very clearly defined. And it's, it's almost like a, a binary pass fail kind of thing. And it sets you up for largely too much rigidity. Yeah. And it sets you up most likely for failure on that because yeah. you're hypothesizing, you're, you're positing something in the future, projecting something in the future that is at a, a concrete fixed place when you really don't know which way the path will go. Yeah. So instead of setting a goal, I always recommend set an intention. I intend to go towards this right. thing like yeah. you know but it's not the goal i'm going to put everything i can all of my effort all of my will all of my ideation all my creativity all my passion towards this intention but the goal is not a hundred thousand this or a million this yeah the goal is just the process of trying my very best and then seeing what this wants to become and because i would submit to anybody who's achieved any success at anything they've gone after is that the shape of that success blew their minds <laughs> Yeah, right. It's never what, never what you it's think. It's never what you think. Um, I don't know if you meditate. But I do. I, I'm a, I'm a meditator for many years. I'm a terrible meditator. I, I'm not consistent <laughs> about know, it. I don't know who's good at it. No, that's exactly my point. My point is that I think meditation. I've come to the conclusion after years of doing it poorly and having the worst monkey mind ever, uh, that it is an exercise in forgiveness for for what you consider to be failure. And I love, love, love reading people like Pema Chodron talk about their anger so honestly uh, about the the ways in which they feel like they're falling short, even though they're meditating and that ability to say, oh, yeah, this is happening mm. and I don't have to strive for something different than this is happening except just to be aware that it's happening. Yeah, awareness. Awareness is the only real achievable goal when you really look at it. When you really boil it down, like what is possible? And, it, and still, it, it can be you know sometimes obscured by your unconscious or subconscious totally. products, your biases, the lens at which you're looking at things, the obstructions, the protection mechanisms. I get it, I get it. Yeah. But to have goalness, to have, I mean, to have awareness as your intention, I think is one of the most beautiful intentions possible because then you become aware and disidentified from these thoughts or this anger yeah. or this protection mechanism or all these things, the jealousies, whatever it is that it is. When you become aware of them, then you can like look at them and have some equanimity and some yeah. peace with what's actually happening. And that is something that meditation teaches you because the brain produces thoughts like the heart produces beats. You know, the, my favorite thing about meditation too, now at this stage of my life, I'm 52, is that I feel like whenever I'm meditating on a regular basis, it it, it feels like it turns me into a mind reader of both myself and other people. <laughs> you start watching, you start seeing people's emotions played out on their faces and in their bodies. Yeah. Um, John Kabat-Zinn again uh, says, this wonderful thing you were talking about, even in even when you're depressed, you realize afterwards that things were fine, things were good. Yeah. Kabat-Zinn says, look, as long as you're breathing, there's more right with you than wrong with you. <laughs> At that, with that basic equation, we can start to do work yeah. and we can start to rebuild. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the essential component. 
All right, let's shift gear, gears here a little bit <laughs> okay. because a lot you got a lot of you got a lot of fans from MythBusters. Let's talk about some myths that you were surprised about. Oh, okay. Some interesting things that kind of happened. Some like a little bit, you know, behind the scenes of like, wow, I actually thought this one might work. Or like, how did the process go when you, you know, were some was some of it like raw discovery where you where you were like, oh, so I much really of it don't, was that. I really don't know. Oh, we really, really, we it was a it was an ethical value for Jamie and I to follow our noses. And we hit this perfect storm where it was back in the days when uh, television was making more money. So networks took more chances with shows. We made our first pilots with a crew of like five people. And the first season, the crew was maybe like eight or nine people tops. It was very a very light touch from the network. Uh, and then the show became a hit. Mm -hmm. So immediately we had more latitude. And the only thing we did with that latitude was we pushed the schedule open so that we had more time to produce the episodes. And we did that for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, being in production full time is exhausting. It's exhausting mm -hmm. on the people who are doing it and on their families. And we wanted, we wanted to keep more normal hours than 14 hours a day, six days a week. Yep. Uh, but the other reason was that we wanted the ability to follow our noses through the process of discovery, pun intended. Uh, which means that when we came to a, a result, sorry, when we went into an experiment, we didn't know how it was going to turn out. And when it came to a, a, a result that we didn't expect, it might mean that the next three days of locations that we've booked for experiments are no longer viable because we now have to do something totally different. And yeah. we would. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, uh, you know, reality television is so not committed to reality that there are reality shows that have table reads. And I'm not kidding. Oh yeah, most and, of them actually. Right, and so there, this is a producer writes something down, and then everyone just fills in the blanks, and the camera people just button on and button off, and it's that's not it's not following a real story. So for us, it, there was an ethical value in trying to come up with rigorous methodologies for testing stuff, and one of the ways we built that rigor in was by arguing with each other constantly. And Jamie and I would really, really push each other. And it was it was a sport and it was also a creative technique. And it was a very robust, uh, a very robust uh, technique for building methodologies that that felt real. So while our iterations may have been too small for a scientific conclusion, that we always tried to build the methodologies with enough rigor that if we could do a thousand passes, we would publish a paper on this based on this experiment that we did. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a long way of saying we never gave a shit what the result was going to be. Right. We were always just interested Committed in to trying to come to a conclusion that would say the result is this. And when we did, there were so many times it was so thrilling. So I'll give an example. Um, everybody, anybody who studied golf ball mechanics knows that golf balls have dimples because the dimples create tiny little pockets of air, which allow the golf ball to slipstream through the air. So a dimpled golf ball will fly far farther than a smooth golf ball. And if you want to try it, you can order smooth golf balls and you can see how <laughs> crappy they make your swing. They make you look terrible at golf. But will it straighten out my slice? That's, right. the, that's so the question. Put, you put dimples on half the golf ball. Um, so the, the myth was that if you dimpled a car in the same way that you dimple a golf ball, you'd get the same slipstream and you'd increase your fuel efficiency. So hail damaged cars go faster. And there are, there are wraps that people had developed that had little tiny dimples in them and they claimed to increase the fuel efficiency. We decided to go whole hog and we got the automotive uh, design department at the Academy of Art College in San Francisco to send out a bunch of young 
students. We covered a car in about an inch of uh, clay, and then we carved over a thousand, uh, you know, semi-hemispherical detents out of the clay. So this car was riddled with with this stuff, and. We ran a fuel efficiency test of that car without that, however, with the same amount of weight in it, mm. so that it weighed the same. And then we ran a fuel efficiency test of the car covered with clay with the dimples. And it's, by the way, we did a bunch of fuel efficiency myths, and these are one, some of the hardest things to actually test. It is really, really difficult to put a meter in a fuel line to tell you precisely to the gram how much fuel has passed point right. X. Right. So we'd come up with all sorts of other ways. We'd use exactly a one gallon tank mm. and we'd see, see how, how far go. we got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or we'd use exactly a one gallon tank and we'd weigh it after run, run one and run two and run three. And in each one we'd get to see, oh, we used X amount of grams of gasoline. But it was always a shit fight. Like it was never <laughs> simple uh, to figure out to the to a high degree of precision how much fuel we'd used for x but in this one we did this we had a single that we rerouted the car's fuel pump to a single fuel cell in the trunk which we could pull out and weigh and when we ran the golf ball car we found a 14 percent improvement in the fuel efficiency oh, no. of the car oh no and it was like both jamie and i we had buttoned everything down we knew that this was a result and we were like this is incredible. Oh, Both wow. of us were shocked. Just yeah. to be clear. I would have bet the don't side of that hard. Right. I would have and, bet the don't side of that hard. Most fuel efficiency improvements are improvements of like 2%, 3%. And you know, probably your mood can affect your fuel efficiency by 10% or more. Sure. It's the single biggest factor of whether you're heavy on the brakes or not. Uh, and there are hypermilers in Japan who get, you know, 80 miles an hour out of a normal Civic because they're driving with bare feet and they're all, I mean, they're probably a nightmare to drive behind. <laughs> okay. But that being said, when we came to that result, we didn't allow our camera crew. Oh, sorry. We didn't allow our camera crew agreed with us. Our producer, Alice and our crew agreed not to shoot any more than that one take of our response because it was never going to get more amazing than our absolute shock at the fuel efficiency <laughs> the high five of holy cow we actually this totally worked um and the best coda on that is a few months later we got an email from one of the big three automakers and they pulled so you know they they're, they're often their their main model of a car their first pass at the full physical shape of a car is carved in clay yeah uh and so they pulled one of their old clay cars out of storage they carved a whole bunch of detents in it that matched ours and they ran wind tunnel tests in it. And they wrote us to show us that their wind tunnel tests did not come to the same conclusion. Now, that's fine with me. One, they used a different, they used an SUV where we were using a sedan. Uh -huh. So I don't think that these results are applicable. But secondly, I was delighted that we had wasted the time <laughs> of a giant multinational billion dollar corporation to test this thing that we'd come up with on our scrappy little show. That's wild. That's really wild. And, and to think that like they were invested in, I wonder if they were investing, investigating out of their own curiosity or whether they were investigating because they're like, man, we really don't want to put dimples in our fucking cars. I know? have I have an opinion. I think that because I've I've gotten to meet obviously people who have jobs that traipse into many different areas of engineering love Mythbusters. The polymaths, the people who are interested in both car manufacturing and sword making, starting fires, wilderness survival, like anyone who loves all that stuff is just part of our core, core fan base. And I've met enough that work for giant corporations to know that really big, smart companies have a few people on deck 
whose only job is to just think as blue sky as they can. Mm. And these folks run teams of amazing engineers just trying everything. And auto auto manufacturers are famous for their prototyping and their their one-offs of like, okay, what if? Yeah. And so I think that that was just part of the budget of a what if group, That's which cool. I love. Yeah. And frankly, you know, if I could have any job in the world, it would be probably for one of those companies <laughs> yeah, totally. doing exactly that kind of work. Yeah, that sounds phenomenal. Uh, an interesting part of your story too is, you know, you, we started this podcast talking about storytelling. I mean, a myth in and of itself is a story that has been told and passed and passed and passed, and it becomes something that that is implanted in us. And why does it propagate? It propagates because we find the premise interesting. It's super intuitive or it's super counterintuitive, but it is a story for helping us understand how the world works. Yeah. So when we say things like, oh, you know, a penny dropped from the Empire State Building will kill you when it hits the ground, you're like, oh, really? Wow, okay, that story intersects with me because I could throw a penny off the Empire State Building. Would I be killing someone? Apparently no one cares because if you go to any level below the observation <laughs> deck on the Empire State Building, they're littered with change. <laughs> so so apparently no one really <laughs> believes this story or New York tourists are a bunch of murderous bastards. <laughs> Both could be true. But again, I think these stories propagate. I've had, It's funny that you bring come back to, to myths and urban legends because it is where the show started. But we, we ran out of classic urban legends probably by episode 20. Yeah. Uh, then we get to movie physics, popular misconceptions, idiomatic phrases, which are all part and parcel of the same thing. They're stories we tell each other to try and understand the world. And we remember the things that stick in our brains. We remember the good stories. So here's an example of, to me, a great good science story, which is my freshman earth science teacher, Dan Frere, at Sleepy Hollow High School. This is like 1980, 81. He said, uh, he's telling us about glaciers. And he's like, the best way to understand a glacier is that it's a river on quaaludes. Whoa. Right? <laughs> and I was like, I have never not been able to understand what I see in glaciers since then. Uh, not that I, to say I'm some genius about glaciers, but everything I've ever learned about glaciers since then has made sense using that framework. <laughs> right. And he took these facts and he put them in a story that was funny yeah and stuck in my head and yet contained a deep truth about the physics of glaciers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so, that's so interesting. And it, it seems like a lot, of these, a lot of these legends hijack, some of them hijack fear, mm -hmm. you know, like the penny off the, yeah. it, you know, or even, uh, even on another show. Or razor blades I, and apples at Halloween. Right, which is or like uh, it's needles in the seats of yep. movie theaters or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yep. And then, you know, other things, even like I watched Jeremy Ray, uh, Jeremy Wade from River Monsters, which is another yeah, show yeah. I really liked. Yeah. I watched him do a, a piece on piranhas where you think that if there's piranhas and there's any blood in the water oh, or anything yeah. like that, that they will just devour you. Yeah. Well, he like got in and then he like, or sh sharks. And like, he's did a couple of things where he's like, not really. You know, like not there really. There are I'm certain species of, of aquatic beings that could strip that the could really do quickly, that, but it's not piranhas. But it's, but it's not, yeah, but it's not like exactly what we think. We're like piranhas. I'm yeah, dead. Yeah, I'm yeah, dead yeah. for sure. No, don't go swimming in Brazil ever, anywhere at all. You know, but then there are certain things that are actually out there. So just kind of differentiating that. But fear is that distorting lens. Yeah. That and then stories that are kind of hijacking that. I think that's something that the news does in its in its own way is its own form of sorcery and black magic is they'll hijack these currents of 
fear or these currents of greed or these currents. A lot of people do these in different that's ways. That's really fascinating that you say that. You're right. I mean, that that's the, the, the thing that's killing me about the news these days is the both sidesarism. But of course, what that's based on is their need to show you a thing and then it's opposite to create a tension that is the only kind of story a lot of journalists seem to know how to tell. Yeah. And it's this story that everybody wants to feel like we right, want to have right. this it's like the dark side of tribalism, my tribe versus your tribe. It feel, makes you feel more bonded with your own tribe when you have a common enemy. It's like every alien movie ever. Yeah. Think Independence Day, the aliens come. Guess what? Nobody cares what country you're from because we're all fighting the aliens. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like this unifying force. We're defined as a tribe by our opposition to a certain degree. And that's a, that's a framework that I think as a world, we got to transcend. We really have to transcend. If we are going to make it out of this, and when I say this, I mean our desperate situation, both politically and environmentally, it's only going to be by, by connecting with each other. I, I am very vocal about my politics on Twitter and I lean heavily left. Um, and I try when I'm, I try very hard and to when I'm talking to someone who I disagree with, but who I feel is talking to me in good faith, and this is that phrase is everything. Hmm. If I feel like they're talking to me in good faith, I take it as axiomatic that we both have the same goal, which is to create a better world for our kids and our family and our friends and our community. And if that's our same goal, then we can differ on methods about whether you think so-and-so should take care of this and so-and-so should take care of that. Those are methodological differences. But uh, when I'm dealing with people, to me, there's this whole debate about good faith, bad faith these days. And what I realized is, oh my gosh, all of society runs on good faith. In mm. fact, all of our laws, all of our agreements, they're all just loose agreements that we've all made together in this collective hallucination to try and get along. And that's what makes us so vulnerable to bad faith actors, I feel. Yeah. Uh, and it's the only way you can surmount those bad faith actors that seek to divide us is to continually realize, and you know, being a person who travels around a lot, I have a very public platform, I meet a lot of people. The more people I meet, the more I see how we are all the same. We are all trying to do the same thing. There is nothing that divides us, whether we're from America or Belgium or uh, you know, some tiny island in the Pacific. Uh, and the, the only way, again, I go back to this axiom, which has been feeling very healing to me lately, which is the only way we're going to make through the, make it through this period, if we do, is because we've learned how to really connect with each other and ex understand and appreciate each other's experience. Yep. And it's, it's going to take some repatterning of the storytelling and framework that we have, which defines ourselves based on our opposition rather than defines ourselves based on our commonality. There, there's a, you know? a, a book, uh, Neil, Neil Stevenson is one of my favorite science fiction writers, he's also a good friend, and he wrote a book called Seven Eves a few years ago, which is wonderful. The opening of the book, this is not a spoiler because it's the opening line of the book, the moon blows up and the moon begins to break apart into seven large chunks or it breaks apart into seven large chunks, which then start to bang into each other, which make smaller chunks, of course. And as those chunks get smaller and smaller, the Earth's gravitational pull starts pulling it down to the potential destruction of humanity. So that's a great premise. Oh yeah, it's totally amazing and super intense. It's one of the so best books I've read. Don't in the blow last... up the moon, anybody, please. Right. That's, well, that's, and it's that, never explained that, why that or bad. how the moon blows up. Like that's just yeah. taken as the axiomatic beginning. I just see the Armageddon drill drilling right? into the moon. Right? Oh, I love Armageddon the, so much. I love that movie. Blowing it into pieces. Talk about the wrong stuff. <laughs> anyway, uh, the book spans 5,000 years. So 
spoiler, humanity makes it through this period. Mm -hmm. but, and when they do, humanity has all of the ability to look back through all of human history, right? We can see the pyramids, and we can see the Age of Enlightenment, we can see democracy, we can see what, what happened to us at the point at which the moon broke and you know, the, the earth was rendered unlivable for a while. And so as humanity rebuilds humanity, they don't make smartphones again because they were like, yeah, that didn't really work out for us the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think that's, yeah. I mean, that's Neil editorializing. Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't asked him directly, but I believe that. Uh, and I agree. I don't know if they're working out for us right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's really, it's really interesting to look at that. And, and thinking about that, you almost wonder if we're driving the earth to such a point of crisis that we actually have a clear and present danger that we can all rally behind. Because oh right now, God. right now we're at an environmental point where there's climate change yeah. deniers, there's climate change agreeers, but everything's still pretty comfortable. You're out in LA, it's still pretty much 75 and sunny. For we're now. here in Texas, so oh, it was a drought for a minute, but now it's wet as hell and there's rain all the time. And it's just kind of things it's are normal enough. Weird, but yeah, it's normal yeah, enough. Still livable now, yeah. That that it's like not people are like yeah yeah you if know you environment. If you choose to ignore it, you can. You can you have the luxury of right. Ignoring but like it. Let, imagining it getting really bad, that might be the only thing that can really bring oh. everybody together when they're like oh wow birds are falling from the sky well I mean, like we can't breathe and the birds like, are falling from the sky <laughs> yeah. we're having well, a, more birds falling from the sky i mean we have an insect collapse do you notice yeah. you get less insects on your windshield we're having a collapse of the entire insect populations yeah and maybe that's maybe actually that's the the thing that we need so that we stop saying like, well, oh, well, China and Russia. And, and we're like, yeah. oh, or maybe it is. Maybe we, with one of our great telescopes, we see one of these asteroids that's coming that like they, you know, yeah. posit. Well, you're describing the, the plot dinosaur. of Watchmen. It, yeah, it right? is. That's Watchmen. how Ozymandias thinks humanity will heal itself by rallying around a common cause. And maybe that, maybe, maybe we are heading. Maybe that was some like artistic genius <sighs> that we need some common cause that, that hurts enough for us yeah. to go like, okay enough is enough like who cares if you're gay and you want to marry each other that's not the problem no there's a asteroid coming yes. everybody let's figure some other more important shit out please well i mean and so those two things that you just talked about i think that we could view those right now culturally is like yeah who cares if you're gay and you want to get married or not there are children starving why are we debating <laughs> yeah. whether or not children should be eating school lunches like where they should have just a cheese sandwich because their parents can. Why? How can we possibly be discussing this? There are people of such surpassing wealth that it is impossible to even conceive of how much money they have. And we're still talking about school systems letting kids go hungry. This is appalling. I, so part of me also thinks about science fiction. Like I like science fiction where you end up meeting an advanced race where they look at us and they're like, yeah, not many, not many conscious races get past this point. Mm. I mean, maybe this is just growing. This is the adolescence of an in, of uh, of an intelligent society, or it's the end. Maybe this is the universal natural selection process, <laughs> it and it's just like be. it's right and on maybe a fifty we're not fifty worthy. edge, right? Maybe and, we're not. Worthy. I mean, humans, yeah, you know, we're on the we're on the do or the don't side. It's yet, yet to be determined. Ugh. But in the in the span of infinite time and infinite worlds and infinite races that may develop. I bet there's there's some that do make it and some that don't make it. And you look at the work of like Graham Hancock and some people who, you know, can have evidence for these highly advanced civilizations twelve thousand years ago that have built oh. some of the monoliths around there. And it looks like, well, you know, they got far, probably a lot farther than we thought they got. I love and they, positing and they got, that, especially when you go back a few million years and you 
realized that plate tectonics could eliminate, could easily eliminate any evidence of a prior advanced civilization that existed yeah. on earth, that there's plenty of time potentially for it to have happened yeah. and us to have no actual evidence of it. Yeah. That's really neat. Yeah. I, I, and this goes back to a, a sort of a history buff that I am. I love some of my wife's jewelry because it looks like you could have bought it at a stand in Rome in a hundred AD. Mm. Because I can see how it was made, and I know I've been to the museums and I've seen Roman jewelry, and I think that if you if you were dropped, if you could speak the language and you were dropped into Rome right now, the most surprising thing, aside from the horrible stench, would be how familiar <laughs> it, it all stink is. There. Oh, I'm sure Florence is so much I'm better. I'm sure the past. Actually, I'm sure the past stinks to high heaven. People dumping their chamber pots <laughs> in the streets. It must have been horrifying. However, I'll bet you'd be walking around going, "Oh, there's a restaurant. There's a brothel." There's a gym. Uh, yeah, there's yeah, there's yeah. a storage facility. Like that, <laughs> yeah. I, there's a library. Like all of this stuff is really clear to me. I I love the idea that going back in time would be like surprisingly familiar, rather than some wow, what's going on kind of moment. I think that you know that famous line: "It was the best of times; it was the worst of times." I think that's like always true. You know what I mean? It's like it's really kind of always true in in some weird way because hmm. I I do believe that this is the best of times and in some ways it's the worst of times oh. and and we always maintain this kind of this kind of level at at seven. You know, <laughs> George Church says this very much uh, as one of his arguments for look things are in the shitter and things are really bad and humans suffer all over the world. However, if you could be a sentient being about to be born as a baby on Earth. If you were about to be born and you could spin a lottery wheel to choose any year to be born, what year would you choose? It's always this year. <laughs> yep. It's always the current yeah. year. This is when you look at the, the swath of human suffering over the, over the ages. And Hans Rosling was this amazing uh, uh, data statistician, science communicator who built a video that changed the way I made Mythbusters. Because it, and it's a video you can go find online. Hans Rosling, uh, health and wellness over the past two hundred years, is the subject of his talk, and he shows how health and wellness of humanity has just been on a linear climb for the last. And he's just looking at the data we have that's consistent, so it's two hundred years. You get to watch it dip uh, during the influ during World War One and the influenza epidemic that whoo, drops the population of the world down, and so does World War Two. Uh, but it's on an upward trajectory. And so, yeah, you know, by and large, we are making things better at the same time as we're killing this spaceship run. The interesting thing, the mindfuck of all this, though, is that as the external is clearly better, undeniably better and the best it's ever been, it's almost humans need, and Mark Manson talks about this in his latest book, Everything is Fucked, human beings need a certain level of struggle to have a certain sense of meaning which makes the mind work. So in the absence of these external struggles, like Sebastian Junger talks about in his book Tribe, like when the bombs were falling on London, you know, some, a lot of the Londoners were the happiest, they recall that as surprisingly one of the happiest times ever because all of their problems were externalized. It was the Nazis. They didn't have to worry about their own anxiety or depression. And it was horrifying. Yeah. Their friends were, were dying in bombs, but somehow the external forces were a little bit actually preferable to the internal strife will well, create maybe. in abundance. Well, this is all over Peter Jackson's film, They Shall Not Grow Old. Um, Peter, when he started digitizing the footage, he realized, oh, I want to hear some interviews with these soldiers. And then he realized 
that we're in this cultural moment where for the last couple of decades where World War I was a bloodbath. It was a horrifying meat grinder of a bloodbath and everybody Ugh. died. And Peter being from New Zealand, New Zealand and Australia are defined as countries by what they went through in World War I. Uh, but back then, so sorry, sorry, he, uh, I get ahead of myself. So he found, he asked the BBC for older interviews from the 60s when a lot of these guys were, were alive and younger, and this wasn't the cultural moment that it was a meat grinder. And many of them say unequivocally, oh, it was the best time of my whole life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were running over a parapet and machine guns were mowing down my buddies and it was awful. I've never felt more alive ever before or since. Uh, it, we are we are a weird species, and we are I mean, weird part of species. part of the uh, 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 the the Fermi paradox. My response to the Fermi paradox: if there are if there is intelligent life that is on an infinite number of planets, how come we haven't seen it yet? Minus, have you watched our television shows? <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to contact. I'm not sure if I was an intelligent race that I'd be ringing the doorbell of yeah. this planet. Because Will Smith soon. is going to try to ram his spaceship <laughs> up your ass if you're a sentient species coming to the Earth. We've made that really clear <laughs> exactly in every movie we had oh man it was a pleasure to sit down and, and talk with you and interact with a, a brilliant mind such as yourself oh, and just i'm just happy that you're here on this planet at this time and able to think about the problems that we have on the micro and the macro well the this podcast followed uh uh the axiom of what was one of the original titles of this book which uh the, the original one of the original titles i was thinking about is the punchline to kurt vonnegut's favorite dirty joke which is and he doesn't even remember the joke anymore. But the punchline <laughs> is, keep your hat on. We could end up miles from here. <laughs> and that's definitely what happened in the book. And that's exactly what happened in this last hour. So I really appreciate Beautiful. that lovely and the rambling book is, conversation. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. The book is Every Tool's a Hammer by yourself, Adam Savage. I'm sure this is Amazon, It Audible, is. I just passed it the in things. the airport for the first time. I got Amazing. to see my book on the airport shelf. That was so exciting. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to dive in myself as well. What and a pleasure. It was a, it was a real pleasure. Thanks, Aubrey. And thank you, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to me and Adam Savage. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Definitely check out his book, Every Tool is a Hammer, and drop by aubreymarcus.com to sign up for the newsletter. Check out my blog and everything we have there, as well as onit.com slash Aubrey to save yourself 10% on the best shit available. I love you guys. I'll talk to you next week.